I know you. You are afraid to speak up. You are scared of what other people think of you. And you blame yourself for what happened to you. I know how it feels because I've been there. If you found me, I'm so grateful you are here. This podcast will give you hope. And I'm your host, Anna Ditchburn. I'm going to hold your hand and provide the guidance that I needed the most. It's time for you to find your why and turn your experience into your superpower. So lock your door, put your headphones in, and enjoy. Janen, welcome to the world's best trauma recovery podcast. Thank you for the invite. Great. So, so great to have you here. Janen, I know this is your very first time when you are, when you is going to tell your story, your full story. Yes. After many, many, many years of battling with your addiction. Yes. I just wanted to tell you how brave you are and how proud I am of you. Thank you. For doing this. Thank you. And how grateful I am for doing, for you doing this. Thank you so much. My first question to you, why is it so important to speak up? to tell your story? Um, there's a couple reasons. One, the most important reason to me is if I don't give back, if I don't tell people my story and try to help others, I will use again. I will be drunk again in no time. The other, I think, which is what kind of what God's plan is for me to educate the world or educate, help others learn how to get sober because I went through a really, really hard hard road of trying to get sober. And it really takes that person making the decision to do it. Doesn't matter what, who on the outside wants them to do it. They will not be able to do it unless they know it on the inside. And I just feel like that's my purpose in life now is that I was made an alcoholic so I could teach other alcoholics how to become sober, how to be in, live in recovery. What an amazing answer. And I know you are, you've been, you've been sober for 20 months. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. What was your addiction? It was alcohol. It was alcohol. Yep. It's funny. I used to, when I first got into my addiction, well, when I first started drinking alcohol, I was tell, I would tell everybody, I will never do anything but alcohol. Because my dad is a, well, what I like to call him a trash addict, but his main drug of choice was heroin, but he did everything and so I I always used to tell people, I'm never going to do anything but alcohol, thinking that it's not the worst one, which, in fact, it is. Like, alcohol and heroin are the two worst dr drugs you can take or get addicted to because they're har the hardest to come off of. It could kill you. Either one of them can kill you if you don't are on the right medications and stuff like that in the right circumstances. So I used to say... Yeah, alcohol is the only thing I'm ever going to do. I'm not going to do anything worse than that, you know. And now now I look back and uh, saying that, I'm like, how ignorant was I to think that I was in the best spot by drinking alcohol, you know, because it's it's difficult to get off of it. It really is because it's legal. It's a social thing. People do it all the time. Um, so it's it's difficult. You have to get you have to really grow grow past the point because Al, you know, he's a he's a social drinker. 
and he can he drinks around me now and it doesn't even bother me in fact after ever since i got sober i smell the smell of alcohol and i want to throw up that's how bad it is because i used my body so badly over those months or years that it just it just reacts that way to it it makes me sick that's so that's so good yeah it is it's very it's a very good um relapse prevention thing for me is to all i have to do is think about it and what it tastes like and what it smelled like and i'm like nope when was the first time you realized that you have a problem with that what was the first signs i cannot really pinpoint but i can tell you around this area and that was when like i was saying yesterday when we got married because everything in my life started falling apart and i started drinking more often mm-hmm. so for years ever since i first drank i mean it was when i first drank it was like once in a great while you know whatever and it was very social and then since my early 20s i would probably drink on the weekends i was a drinking I used to tease myself and say I'm a weekend alcoholic, you know. What were you drinking? What was just it my preferred thing back before I became an alcoholic was rum. Um once I became an alcoholic it didn't matter as long as it got me drunk and I would go straight for the bottle because that's a lot quicker, you know, to get me where I needed to be. So but um I think it was around that time because I started drinking like three or four days a week because I I just couldn't cope with what was going on in my life, you know. Um so I think it was probably around 2009-2010 where I started seeing myself as Al saw me at the same time just starting to drink more and feel less about myself and yeah. So that was the first time. The first time I ever drank, I was with my daughter's dad and he forced it down my throat and to get me to do things that sexually that I, he wanted me to do. He was my first And so that's how my drinking started was through that but I was I was 15 years old and it was very so it was like once every 3 months or whatever you know it wasn't very often that I drank so yeah I'm just wondering you know the alcohol is a disease yes I do and being an alcoholic it's just a a sign of a deeper a trauma yeah. it's a symptom of yeah. what's going on in your life uh, yeah. that you are trying to escape uh-huh. you're trying to uh, diminish yeah what's what's your what was happening in your life that you were trying to escape from how did um, it start it it's still hard for me to kind of put the pieces together but a lot of okay so when i was When I was young, growing up, I came from a lower middle class family. There was a lot of hand-me-downs, there was a lot of, you know. And so in school, I was bullied a lot. I didn't I got made fun of. I I got treated differently. And so I always felt different. And as I got older, you know, I never had a whole bunch of friends, a big group of friends. I was like two or three friends, pops was all I had and that's just something that worked for me and so as I grew I just had really low self-esteem I thought I was worthless I thought nobody wanted me another thing my father and I were very 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 close I have five siblings I was the only one he gave a nickname and my nickname was Candy and I was just his girl 
um, I have two older brothers, two older sisters, and a younger sister. And there was this special bond between us. And when I was 12, he lost his job of, I don't know, 21 years. I mean, it's when I tell you this story, you're going to put the two together because you're going to see me and Al and our relationship. You're going to see me and my uh, my dad and our relationship. So once he start, once he lost his job, he went to work for a bar and he um, started with drinking and we're all LDS. We grew up LDS, my family, and he started with drinking and then went to pot and then he worked his way up to where he was at heroin. And so he would take anything to get him high because he didn't want to deal with his own demons. Mm -hmm. And so um, when that happened, we he was, I wasn't his little girl anymore. So I dealt with abandonment issues, um, all sorts of things. More than I wasn't his little girl anymore. Once I had my own children, I was a single mom. So I'm raising them and all my siblings are married. So I was the one my mom came to for my dad used to leave her at work and be gone for three weeks. So she would call me and say, will you come and pick me up from work? Will you take me to work every day until my your dad comes back? And I think my dad got jealous of that relationship. Um, coming from an alcoholic addict's perception, I would think that that's what happened because we started to fight a lot. He would call me names. He would call my daughter names. And I don't know what kind of grandpa ever calls your granddaughter a name, but he called her a bitch and he'd call me a tramp and a whore and whatever. And so our relationship wasn't good. And when he died, we weren't even speaking to each other. And so I think like, it's funny because two days before he passed away, my mom, it's not really funny, but my, my mom, I had told my mom, I don't want my dad at my house. It's not okay with me. And she came over to my house two days before he died and she, he was with her. So I opened the door and I saw him and I said, I'm sorry, dad, but you're going to have to stay in the car. And I let my mom in. And then two days, two days later, he was gone. He had overdosed from my own overdose. I didn't, I mean, I felt kind of guilty that I didn't have a, any kind of interaction with that with him. But I, I, the guilt went away once I became an alcoholic because I realized what he went through and how other people react to me. And I can see exactly why the whole situation pl played out the way it did, you know? You understood. Yeah. I hated him so bad when he, he was like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And it took me becoming an alcoholic to not hate him anymore because I started realizing why you know, because it was underlying. There was something else there that was making him do the things he did. And as long as he did the things that he did, is that's why he treated people the way he did, because that's what drugs do. Yeah. So I think it's a mixture of everything. Um, when I was in rehab at one, one point, they played that game. I don't know if you remember or if you ever played this game when you were a kid, but the blindfold game where they hand you things and you have to figure out what the item is that you... Have you ever heard of that game? Yes. Okay. Yes. And so um, we played that one time. And when they put the blindfold on me, I realized who it was that sexually assaulted me when I was a child. And it was my dad. Because I remember playing that game with him. And I thought it was a banana that I had in my hand. And it was not, of course. And um, I remember describing it to him what it was, you know, because that's how the game goes. And um, and then there was another there's another memory that I have of him when I was with him where he sexually assaulted me. But I 
that one I don't want to talk about. But so, yeah. So there's the, the bullying, the sexual assault, the feeling of not being good enough or never being enough. I dated, I've dated my share of men before I met Al and never been married. Um, my, both my children are with different fathers. Their fathers are actually the worst ones I ever w- were with. My daughter's dad was every kind of abuse you can think of, you know, um, sexually, verbally, physically. And my son's dad was just really controlling and didn't treat me very good at all. You know, made me, made me feel really worthless or I felt really worthless when I was with him. And so I was engaged many times too. And I never, they never followed through. Not one guy ever followed through. So that, you know, that left a lot on me. I was like, wow, am I that worthless? You know, am I not important enough to anybody that, you know? And then I met Al and it's like my whole world changed. And when we got married, that was the first time I'd been married. And I, we fought for like a year before that about getting married because he's been married. This is his fourth time. So when we fought because he's like, I'm not ever getting married again. But it was so bad because he fought for a year with me. I'm knocked down, drag out fights. He had I would have to leave the house. That's how bad it got. And the whole time he was planning on asking me on New Year's Eve in Windower. And I'm like, seriously, <laughs> why? How could you go through all that stuff? I mean, all the stuff I said to him and all that stuff, he went through all of it just to ask me to marry him. <laughs> so I was feeling pretty dang good once we got married. I'm like, finally, I have somebody that can help me with my kids and help uh, with finances and, you know, take care of us, you know, so I don't have to do it alone anymore. And then he loses his job a month after we got married and it starts coming back to me. Plus, I don't think he mentioned this when he was on stage yesterday, but he has a, he likes to do cocaine and he was doing that when we first met. And I had that, that little thing. I'm okay with everything except for, I mean, I'm okay with alcohol, but not anything else. Mm -hmm. And he knew that. And we talked about it and it was like our second New Year's together or something. He kept going into his friend's room and then coming back out. And I was like, there's something going on there. I'm not stupid, you know. Um, I've seen people to do drugs, and I know what they act like. And so on the way home, I mentioned something to him, and he told me, yes, I was, he, was doing, he was still doing coke. And so I said, I want you to stop doing that. Well, when he lost his job three years later, I found out he was still doing it. And that's how he lost his job, because he got a dirty drug test. Mm-hmm. And so there's that. there was that, and then there was the lying about not doing it anymore. And then there was all the stress that just came to me because I was going to be the breadwinner again, which, you know, and um, then there was just all my past, all the, how low I felt, you know, that I wasn't worthy of anybody else, worthy of love, worthy of anything. So that, I mean, I'm, I'm aware of why, and I think that helped me stay sober this time because I'm aware of the reasons why I drank. And now I don't need to drink to feel complete. You know, I love myself enough to be able to make it through any issue and any problems that I have, you know. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I You're really welcome. appreciate it. Yeah. It's just really courageous. And I know it's for the very first time yeah. you're telling this story. Yes. Publicly. Mm-hmm. Sorry to hear about your sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. I know how it feels. Yeah. And 
I know at one one moment you will be able to to heal it and mm-hmm. to share it with people to help others. I know how it feels. It took me <laughs> took me two years <laughs> to start talking about mm-hmm. this. So baby steps. Yes. Baby steps uh, and go easy on yourself. Okay. How did it feel for you when you when you went into this addiction, when you started to drink every single day? Do you remember how it felt to be an alcoholic? It felt good at first, you know. It was that I mean, I felt numb to my emotions, and I could go go to sleep without thinking about a million different things, which is still a problem today. <laughs> I'm a thinker. That's when I think. Is when I go to bed. I just felt like I could handle the whole world, you know, on my shoulders. And so it felt good to be able to have that release all the time. Whenever I was feeling stressed or feeling like I wasn't going to be able to make it, it felt good to have something to wipe it all away. And then it stopped feeling good. And then it stopped. It started being a need. It started being, I can't live without this. Or really, yeah. I can't live without this because I will die if I stop drinking it and I will die if I continue to drink it. So I was like, well, how am I going to do this? And it took me a long time to dis- to make that decision inside myself to say, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Like I was saying yesterday, first time that I went to rehab it was all for him. It was all for him because I was like, I don't have a problem. I'm not drinking every day. I don't you know, pass out every time I get drunk. I It's just like you hear that in AA so much. It's like they have the same stories. And I'd go to AA and I'd be like, they have it way worse than I do. There's no way I have a problem. I work 40 hours a week. I, you know, I never drink when I'm at work, not on break, not on anything, you know. And so I thought I was great. And it just, there was a point in 2017 when I got the two DUIs that he was talking about that I couldn't drink, go to work and drink. It didn't work for me anymore. Not that I ever drank at work. That made it sound like I drank at work, but I never drank at work. But that at that point, I had to be drunk all the time, 24-7, from 17, 2017 to 2020, and I stopped. The only time I wasn't drunk is when I was in a rehab or jail. Other than that, I was drunk pretty much 24-7. You went a few times to a rehab mm-hmm. and to jail. Nine times in rehab, and I don't know how many times in jail. A lot of those times were Al-induced, too. Yeah, he he would call the police on me. And the first couple times he did it, I was like, how could a husband call cops on your wife? For one, you know all about her fear of jail. And for another, I'm your wife. You should love me more than want me to be in jail, you know? And so that really affected my self-esteem, too. I was like, how could he do this to me? You know, I must really be worthless. But that was not his intention at all. You know, his intention was to slap me in the face and make me realize what I'm doing. But it didn't work. It was just the opposite effect. That's a really good point for for some families who struggle with a family member. Right. Mm-hmm. What? If you go back, what would help you to realize that enough is enough? What would what could L do to help you in this situation? I think one thing would have been that he wasn't so oppositional with me. Like he would tell me, it's like he was trying to convince me 
of things, you know. And so he would tell me, you're just drunk. You're just, you know, you uh, you're going to kill yourself and things like that. And I, it was almost a rebellious side of me that said, you know, what? if he thinks I'm going to be that way, I'm going to be that way. You know, so I think a lot of the slanderous words that he said, which, you know, I don't blame him for him because he was scared. He was scared to death I was going to die or something else worse would happen to me. You know, somebody would pick me up or something and he was scared. And so I don't blame him at all. He just didn't know what to do. And most people on the other side don't know what to do. That's why I'm so proud of him doing what he's doing with this podcast because he's helping all those others out there because when it comes to the alcoholic or the addict there's rehabs there's you know there's all sorts of different things for them to do but when it comes to the family members there's the only thing i know of besides al's podcast is alanon and al will tell you he didn't like alanon at all but i think everybody even you know people in recovery People outside of recovery, on the other side, whatever, they need different options. Not just one option is going to work for everybody because we're all different. and We all need different things to heal. And so I love that he's doing that podcast. I just love it. And so because it's taught him so much. Um, One time he likes to tell this story, and I don't know if he did yesterday or not, but um, I was in this state-run program, rehab program, and they – after you're in there a certain amount of time, they give you passes, like day passes and overnight passes and things like that. And we had just, we were just heading back to the rehab from one of those passes. And I was complaining about how it was there because with my low self-esteem, you know, that's, uh, that got even worse when I was there because the girls didn't like me. And so they treated me differently. And so we were talking about that and he started giving me advice about, like a therapist would. Mm -hmm. And so he likes to talk about the story a lot, but I said, I just turned and I looked at him and I just plain as day. I'm like, for once, I would like you to be my husband instead of my therapist, you know, and just listen. I think that's a big thing is he was so busy telling me how to do it that he never listened to how I was feeling, you know? So I think that was a huge thing for him too. I think that really changed changed our tables once he realized because even after I said that he still continued to do what he was doing but then he finally he was like okay this is this has got to be hard for her she's got nobody nobody to talk to and every time she tries to talk to me about it I just get triggered myself and I want to lash out on her so he says I need to stop doing that. I need to tell her, you know, you need to go talk to somebody that understands what you're going through. And and he started doing that. And yeah, things started getting better. And once once he was in that spot where he's like, I'm going to take care of me and stop trying to take care of her. I started coming around to that same thing. You know, I started saying because it wasn't you're drunk all the time or it wasn't any of that. So that rebelliousness went away. My fight left me. And I started focusing on what I could do to get sober. So, yeah. So I, I think he's got a lot of knowledge and I, I think he's got a lot of things that he can help others with that have been on the other side. So this is so important sometimes just yes, to, it is. to listen Yes. To, to someone instead of telling what to do. Yes. And 
I know for some families who don't know what what you've been through, it's hard to understand how to behave themselves. And you're right, family members have to take care of themselves. Yes, and to, and to learn what is the what is the problem. Mm-hmm. What was your most shameful moment? Oh well, that's a good question. There were so many. I would have to say, well, one of them was. I was really, really drunk, and um, so Al had done what he always does and kicked me out, and um, my daughter and her husband came to get me, and they were going to take me to a hospital to go to detox, and I was like, I didn't want it. So I was like, I got in this really huge fight with my daughter about it, and she was trying to pull me back to her car and stuff, and I was like, no, I'm I'm not going to. I'm going to take my suitcase. And I'm gonna go somewhere else. And um, she she called the cops and tried to get them to get me to go inside. And I'm like, no, I am not. No, that's not gonna happen. And they can't make me do it. You know, nobody can make me do it. Only I can make my do it. Me do it. So she convinced the cops not to arrest me because I wasn't gonna go in. You know, and that's what they would normally do is they'd either arrest me or get me to go inside because I'm drunk and disorderly. I'm outside and I'm drunk and public detox and intox and stuff like that. But she convinced them not to arrest me and said that I was going to go with them. But as soon as the cops left, she's like, okay, we're getting on our car and we're going. You just, you'll have to do it. I'll it on your own. Because, you know, that was a proper thing for her to do. She didn't want to enable me and, you know, give me a place to go drink more, you know. So um, she left me and I... Um, I was only, I'd say, if I took the bus, I would be only about 20 minutes away from my sister's house. So I was planning on going over there. And there, went up the street and I sat down. I was really drunk. I sat down and I was waiting for the bus to come by. And I had this guy stop and ask me if I needed a ride. And I was so drunk, I didn't even think about it. I didn't even think twice. And I got in the car with him. And so we're heading towards my sister's house. And he was, he started talking to me about, giving me some money for so I can get some more alcohol or going and buying me alcohol. And then he's like, he puts his hand on my leg and he starts touching me and stuff. And I, there's one thing I can say with both of us, me and Al, there was no cheating when I was an alcoholic. You know, he stayed true to me. I stayed true to him. But this guy, he would put it, he put his arm hand on my leg and, we just barely got to my sister's subdivision area, so we weren't going as fast. So, But he touched me, my vagina, and um, he started fingering me. And I opened the car door, and I just jumped out, took my suitcase with me. But I think that was, I mean, that left me with the most shame out of everything that I've done. There's been some other times that were kind of similar to that. I would meet people on the street when I was drunk and my and Al had kicked me out. And I don't even know if he knows this stuff, so I guess he's going to find out for the first time because I'm sure he's going to want to hear this. But this other time, um, I saw two people riding their bikes probably about 10 blocks away from where I live. And I was walking, and I'm drunk, and I had my suitcase, and they offered to give me a ride. I got on the, the handlebars, and they stopped at this church, LDS church, and... They were smoking pot, and I would do that once in a while, you know. And um, I didn't have any alcohol left, and so I was like, yeah, I'll smoke some pot with you guys. And 
and they started touching me and I I'm really not sure of what all I I did myself physically um I know I kissed the guy but I'm not really sure what else but I'm like I get it's like my uh my morals would come way after it was too late you know I'd be like well okay I don't want to do this stuff you know and so I know there was no sexual contact in between in, in anything ever but those were the two, two things I think were the most shameful for me because yeah that's not I have better values than that and that's not ever 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 on my mind you know to go out on owl or anything like that so yeah I appreciate you sharing this story with me and I know when you women will listen to this and they will associate themselves yeah. with the, with your story and resonate with your story. And it's not you. I know it's an alcohol. Mm-hmm. It is a disease, once again, that push you to do this. Mm-hmm. Even I haven't been an alcoholic, but my self-esteem was so low. Mm-hmm. And even when I wanted to say no, I would always say yes. Mm-hmm. Please. And I had so many sexual intersections just because I couldn't say no. Yeah. Just because I didn't want to upset the person mm-hmm. who, who I met not long time ago. Yeah. We are so much like it's crazy. I mean, that was the same way before I met Al. I I would say it over thirty men that I've been with and it, it was all voluntary, you know, except for when my uh, was with my daughter's dad, you know, that was the only time. But every other time was all voluntary. And it's just because I couldn't say no to that person. I didn't want them mad at me. And I didn't feel good enough about myself unless I was doing that. Yes. You know? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's that's what I went through. Yeah. Beauty is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many I had? I, I, there could be more. I don't know. But yeah. 30. As far as I know, <laughs> I can remember. Yeah, it's not it's not funny, but now when when you when you think about it, it everything comes from the childhood. Yeah. What was the uh, the turning point for you when you really decided, okay, enough is enough? Um, that one's easy. So when I was in November, beginning of November, I got arrested for drunk and disorderly and um sent to jail and I was I tried my hardest to get I called everybody to get bailed out and all this stuff and this first time I spent a holiday in jail I had Thanksgiving in jail which you know jail food is really awful it's nothing like Thanksgiving dinner (laughs) um and I had called tried to call everybody my siblings my husband, everybody on Thanksgiving itself, nobody answered. Um, so I was pretty much at my bottom. I mean, I've had many bottoms, but this was... So I was in jail, and every time I go to jail, so they won't give me my medication, like anxiety medication, depression medication, because, I don't know, the system here is so weird. It's like they have to have a prescription for you for it in order to give it to me. And so um, when I go to jail, I'm just hilarious. I mean, hysterical all the whole time I'm there. Hysterical. I cry all the time. Well, that's one place you don't want to be that little weak person in the corner because you'll get your ass kicked, you know. But I never did. 
but I, I can stuck to myself and we were, uh, it was during COVID, which I'm also claustrophobic. So just, we were in our cells 23 hours a day, one hour out. And I was just freaking going crazy, you know, and this happens every time I go to jail, but it wasn't the same. It was better, I should say. And God comes to sit with me and we talk. And um, this time he came and he, he held me in his arms like a little child. And he said to me, he said, this is your last chance. If you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. And I got out the end of November. Within two hours, I did what I've always done. Within two hours, I was drunk again. But I knew when I went and drunk, drank again that this was going to be my last time. I knew for sure that I was done. So usually when I'd go on one of my bingers, um, Al would let me stay at the house. And I just ended up sleeping and drinking all day. I'd be in bed 24-7 for about a week. And then he'd be sick of it. And he'd say, it's time for you to go or go to detox. I'll take you to detox if that's what you want. But if not, then you just need to sleep. And so this, after it had been about seven days of doing this, um, he started bothering me and bought up. And so I went outside. I had my bottle with me and my cigarettes. And I sat out in front of our apartments. And there's a little creek there in front of our apartments. And I just laid down there and I smoked and I drank and I smoked and I drank and I'd pass out for a little while and then wake up. So about an hour after I first went out there, Al comes out and he's like, are you ready to go to detox now? Because he could see how I was, you know, whenever he likes to say or doesn't like to say, but but um, he could look into my eyes and he saw death. He knew I was dying. I knew I was dying. But I was so drunk that I had no control over my decisions, over, you know, what I was doing. So I said, no, I'm not ready. I started hearing voices. I started seeing people. I've never been in an alcoholic psychosis, but that was the first time. And I was like, I'm done. I, I just want to get sober. And, you know, but I continued to drink. Oops. I know. It's scary. <laughs> it does it to me every time. But I just, I didn't know how to stop. I didn't know how to stop what I was doing. I didn't know how to make that decision. I stayed there for another hour and Al came out again and he says, are you ready now? And I said, yes, I'm ready to go. I, I couldn't get up. He had to help me up. And he doesn't, he usually takes me into the detox and gets me registered and whatever. We fight the whole time. But this time he just dropped me off in front, in the, at the front doors and took off because he couldn't, he couldn't go through it one more time. And I got in there and I had left AMA too many times. And so they said, we're going to have to take you, send you over to VOA. VOA stands for, let's see if I can say it now, Volunteers of America, but it's the Utah branch. And so they have a detox, but they have no medical personnel. So you get your prescription for your detox medication from your doctor. They send it over to these guys and they go to the pharmacy and pick it up for you. And then they give it to you. So... The pharmacy LDS was able to do that for me. But when you detox, you don't want to do anything. You just want to sit there and just go through the motions until it's out of your system and you're ready to move on. So the, just to show you a comparison, the LDS hospital and the VOA hospital is like you're at a hotel with the LDS hospital. 
when you go to detox, they have a menu. You can pick out whatever you want to eat. You have a nice bed, your own room, all that stuff. When you go to VOA, since it's a state or a nonprofit organization, um, they don't charge insurance or anything like that for you to go there. And there's four bunk beds in each room. You share with three girls or whatever. Uh, the mattresses are like the camp mattresses that you see, like the like the military would use or something. You know, that's just barely thick enough. You have very sparse bedding. And of course, like I said, no medical staff. They make you do a chore every day, which, you know, when you're de- you probably don't know. But when you detox, you don't have any energy. You don't feel good. You don't. Yeah. You get the shakes. You get the hot and then cold, hot and then cold. You don't want to go do work. You know, the last thing you want to do is move. So detox is just for detox. Mm. And then comes the rehabs where you start to learn how to get sober and stay sober, you know. But this place is just like they're starting you on your recovery already, you know, right at the beginning. Your mind's just not clear enough for that, you know. So anyway, so I never liked detoxing there because of that, those reasons. Um, so I was only there for two days. And after that, I'm like, I'm out of here because you get to choose when you can leave. You know, that's the only difference between going to a hospital for detox. I went to my daughter's house and she told me I could stay there. But then the next day she told me I couldn't stay there because her husband didn't want me there because I was on APMP, which is adult probation and parole. So they and when you're on that high of probation, um, they come and see you and they come into your house and they didn't want somebody coming into their house so all the time so at that point i was i had nowhere to go nowhere and well unless i wanted to go to the local shelter or whatever and i've been kind of a princess through this whole thing because al has always made sure i was taken care of you know if he couldn't do it he would find somebody that would do it you know and um so i was only homeless two days at the whole time i was an alcoholic and that was when i just he kicked me out one time and I just went over to the park across the street from my house because I didn't want to bother anybody. And I just slept there for two days and finally came back and said, please give me another chance. And so he came and picked me up and he said, when we first got home, he's like, here's the boundaries. We have nothing anymore. You and I were nothing. Although we had to sleep in the same bed, you know, because there was only one bedroom in our apartment. But he says, and you can make a decision that you're going to be sober or not. And if you decide you want to drink, you need to leave my house and not do it before you start. I mean, not drink before you leave. Mm-hmm. He says, I want you out. This is your last chance. This is it. And, you know, I was at the point where after my conversation with God and everything, I'm done anyway. So I was like, OK. And so about, I don't know, about a couple of weeks went by or so. And. I was I was pretty much dead. It was like I couldn't walk. I couldn't talk. I was trying to tell Al, you know, and it, this had never happened to me before. All the times I've detoxed, I never felt this way afterwards. I tried to, to have a conversation with Al and all my words would get jumbled. It's like it didn't make any sense. So I'm figuring I probably got a little bit of wet brain finally, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he asked his uncle if he would give me a, blessing because LDS in the LDS religion they do blessings and stuff like that and so he went over to his house and 
you could, I could just see whenever I saw anybody, I could see what they were thinking about me. You know, they're thinking she's dying, you know, because that's what I looked like. I just I had had a hard time functioning in my mouth. You know, they it I lost control of it. Mm-hmm. So, but his aunt's over there going like this the whole time I walk in. And she's so scared for me, you know. And so he he gave me a blessing. And after it took about two days, but I started coming back. I was able to talk normal and walk normal. And after that, I was like, hell no, am I ever doing that again? <laughs> you know, I don't want to feel that way ever again. So, yeah, I've been sober ever since. So I'm so glad you did it. I am too. So glad. Every day. Janet, what would be your best advice to your 10 years younger? So 10 years from now? Oh, don't forget. Keep growing and don't forget how precious life is. That's an amazing advice. Yeah, I think so. That's another thing is my, um, so we have the three grandchildren, but they're my husband's daughters and about 2018, I think it was, she stopped letting me see the kids. So I went for four years without seeing them. Oh, it was so hard. And so my our youngest is a boy, and he's just barely turned six. So he was like around one years old last time he saw me. He didn't even know who I was this time. I never want to lose that again. I never want to lose that right to see those kids again. So that's the things that I do to... So this is kind of an advice to how I stay sober is I remember what I have to lose. And I remember how bad it was when I was there and the memories of here smelling the alcohol and tasting the alcohol, those kinds of things. I think that's I don't think anybody should ever forget that they were an addict. So I don't think they should ever forget that because those bad memories will keep you sober. They'll keep you from. Mm-hmm. ever wanting to have that drink or that drug again so and i'm so happy that i'll stayed me too yeah by your side all mm-hmm. the time a big shout out to your beautiful and amazing husband al who started his own podcast the other side of addiction mm-hmm. based on your story yes based on his own experience mm-hmm. and now he's he's helping millions of people yes <laughs> to go through a difficult uh, cha- and challenging situation so mm-hmm. big shout out to al and as he said he wouldn't be able to do this work without you and i'm so i'm so glad you came out on another side of this addiction yes and, and is dealing with your trauma with mm-hmm. your childhood trauma which is the biggest key. And you are co-hosting his podcast as well. Yes. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your podcast. My podcast? Your, your podcast uh, with Al. Oh, the other side of okay. I, I don't have much to do with it. So um, once in a while, I get the opportunity of going co-hosting with him. But really, I, I don't really do anything to help. All I, I'm just inspiration for it. So, but... It's a very safe place for people to be honest with themselves and others. That's the way I look at it. Whether you've been in the addiction, whether you have family members in addiction, it's a safe place to talk about it. And his goal is to get um, rid of the stigma. And um, I was talking about some with somebody yesterday, um, Dave DeRocher's mm-hmm. wife, and because I didn't know she was in recovery. 
until he told his story. I was like, I was telling him that pretty much. I was like, I had no idea you were in recovery. When I first met you guys, I was thinking she sure lowered herself to be with that guy, you know, because he was the addict and I knew that. And I thought, I said, you know how much of a stigma that is right there. Even people in recovery have a stigma about recovery mm-hmm. or addicts or whatever, because I saw her. She looks like this Molly Mormon or church going girl, you know, and she's with this guy. And so she, she's never been she's never drank. She's never been where he has been, you know, and I just assumed that I made that assumption. And then I find that out and we talk and we have so much in common. But I had my own stigma about what addicts are supposed to look like, you know. So um, that's what we're really, really focused on is getting rid of that stigma mm-hmm. and offering help to the people on the other side, because people in recovery, they get all sorts of help. But people on the other side they don't and we offer safe vulnerable vulnerable safe vulnerability that's the best way i can say it is you can say what you need to say or not say what you you know al gives the podcast to that person pretty much he doesn't you know he says you 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 lead and i'll follow i i will ask questions about what you have to say and that works for a lot of people me on the other I would not work very well that way. Like I was telling you at the beginning, I like that you ask questions because that's the way I am. So that's the way I speak is, I mean, because I'm just shy about myself. You know, I don't really like talking about myself, but that's what the podcast is all about. You're doing an amazing job. Thank you. What's next for you? What are you looking forward to? You know, so I've done accounting for almost 20 years. And when I got sober this last time, I was like, I was content with that. And I always said, every time I got sober, I said, I'm never going to be a sponsor and I'm never going to work in recovery because I don't want to deal with that every single day of my life, you know? Um, So I went back to working in accounting and it's been really difficult finding something in accounting because of my background, because I have um, a record and I was able. So when I first got sober, I worked at Savers and the Savers is like a thrift store and because I couldn't get back into accounting. And so it took me about six months and I found this job at this other place called Sportsman's Warehouse. Um, and I was working in accounting for them. And But it was only 10 positions. So I lost, I left, left that debt job in September of last year. So then I went, I was like, that's when I was like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? You know, this is not what I want. Um, that's when I first spoke to Laban about what I'm going to do with my rest of my life. Yes. And he, he inspired me so much because he told me, I mean, he pretty much told me what I was going to be doing without saying specifically what I was going to be doing, you know? (laughs) And he says, if you follow the steps that I'm talking about, then you will be there. And so I ended up getting a job. So ever since I was a little girl, I have loved people with Down syndrome. I loved, loved, loved them. My dad used to say my face would just light up every time I saw one. And I'd just walk right up to him and start talking. And they have this such a sweet, special spirit, mm-hmm. people with uh, medical issue, medical disabilities. Mm-hmm. And so I was. And angels. I, I call them not with medical disabilities, but yes. special people. Special needs. That's what we call need. them. Special need, need people. Yeah. yeah. Not even special needs. They like. They're just, they are Angels. special. They're special. Yeah. They're just special people. They don't have an evil bone in their body. They don't have, yes. yeah. Yes. They just, they love everybody. Oh mm-hmm. gosh, it's such a special thing. But anyway, so 
But Down syndrome is not as popular in our world now as autism is. Mm. There's plenty of autistic people, you know. So I went and I found a job uh, working at a company called T- CTA Supports. And they work what with autism. Um, so they work have, with autism. Yeah, um, they work with autism. Um, they do work with some Down syndrome, but it's like every 20 to 1. And then I really am passionate about the kid aspect of that. So I was working for their after school program. So it was like, um, I would say teenagers, young adult, I mean, young preteens. And I loved it. I was in heaven. I wasn't making very much, not what I could make for doing accounting, but that's where it was. I was giving back and I was loving somebody enough until they loved themselves, you know, and um, it felt good. And that lasted for about three weeks and they got my background check back and they let me go. So then I said, I guess I'm just going to go back to accounting because I can't do anything that I really want to do, what I'm passionate about, you know. And just before I got that, though, I have to mention Laban again. Your husband, he is just like an angel to me, you know, because he when this is when Alf and him first talked is when he found out about what I was going through. And when he had Laban on his show, Laban was telling his story. And then they got I guess during the break, they got to talking about me and what I was going through. And Laban, um, after he got done he sent me a instant message, voice message on my phone. And I just love his accent, as I said before. And it was so cute. It just meant so much to me. I cried. Um, it wasn't very long, but he's like, after talking with you the other day, I feel like you're, he, well, he basically described that Al told him what was going on with me. So he says, after talking with you the other day, I have been, um, I don't know how you guys say it, you felt something about somebody else, you know, I don't know how to say it, but um, I feel like you should go in this direction. And he pretty much said, I feel like you working with kids and you doing those things are going to be your passion, you know? And so then I went and got that job and I was like, I, yeah, I was in love. But then after uh, it took me so far low, I didn't drink but I was low. I thought I'm never going to be able to do anything that I want to do because of this stupid addiction. And so that's where I think a lot of people hear people say, how could that person that's been in recovery for so long say that they are grateful they were an alcoholic? You know, it's, it's mind blowing to people when they first get sober. But as you get blessed more and more and more, you realize that God had a reason for you being that way. And it was your purpose in life, you know? So I was, but I was just really, really low. And I thought I, I'm never going to be able to serve anybody, you know? And I knew that I had to wait at least six months to have it expunged, all these things. And so I said, I'm just going to go back to accounting because at least there, I know I can get a job and I know what I'm doing. And um, so I got another accounting job. And three weeks after that, they got the background check back and let me go again for the same background. Um, it used to be back in the day you could do accounting and you didn't. they didn't even check your background because it, unless it had something to do with stealing or smuggling money or something like that. But um, at that point, I was getting really frustrated again, just going through all this emotions. And then in the no, middle of July, beginning of July, 
um, I got a job at Meds for Vets um, doing bookkeeping. And it's only part-time. So I go there for four hours a day. And just recently, I was like noticing that I have just been like there, you know, I haven't really, I go there and I'm in a great mood, ready for work, all that stuff. By the time I leave, I'm like, what the hell have I done today? Who have I served? Who have I helped? And Al and I have a mutual friend named Rachel Santizo, and she just started at USARA. And now I don't know if I told you last night, but Utah's, Utah's support advocates for recovery association, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are pretty much, they're pretty much peer, peer support. Mm-hmm. And I actually have one, her name is Tiffany, but she, Rachel, she just barely got her certification. And so she put it on Facebook and everything. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, I need to be doing that. I need to be working with them. And so Alan and I discussed it the previous weekend. And then when I went back to work on Tuesday, I had an appointment with my fr- Tiffany, with my Tiffany. <laughs> and um, I went in and saw her and I told her what I wanted to do. And she, she printed up the application for me. And so that's where I'm seeing my future is in a CPSS. Yeah. So helping people. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It's such a fulfilling Yes, I'm so excited. I mean, like we had, I had that experience last night with that girl that we went to the restaurant and she's six months sober and she found out that we were, we were working with people in recovery and other, other family members. And she, you know, it was just like, she said, we, I made, we made her day. And even the other waitress that we had that night, the one that worked, waited on us the most, our table the most, she came to me and she said, you made my day. Just hearing your story, that made my day. That made me look at things differently. Oh, and that was the best feeling I've ever felt in my entire life. I mean, the best. So, yeah, it's really great. I mean, because all throughout this time, I go in and out of recovery. And when I go to AA meetings, I would hear people saying that all the time, Mm -hmm. that they walk into a restaurant and they see somebody they know, or they tell them that they're in recovery. And then all of a sudden that person has a story about recovery too. And how fulfilling that is to be able to inspire somebody or to be able to make somebody's day. And that happened to me last night. And that's the first time it's happened. All these times I listened to people saying that happened. I've never seen it myself. And then I saw it last night and I was like, this is all worth it. That's that my addiction was worth it because I just saved one person today or helped one person today. And then tomorrow I can probably find somebody else I can help. You know, Yes. (laughs) I see it. I finally see what other people are saying. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. If people would love to connect with you, what is the best way to connect? Um, probably just my phone is the best. Um, I don't care who has my number. I mean, (laughs) No psycho, no psychos allowed. <laughs> but 385-427-9430. You can also contact me on Facebook. What is your Facebook account? It's Janan Richards. So J-E-N-A-N-N Richards. And then um, my email address, Janan, J-E-N-A-N-N Richards, R-I-C-H-A-R-D-S, 2358 at gmail. Janine, thank you so much for sharing your story thank you. so openly and so vulnerably today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being there for me while I did that. Thanks. 
love you, Caroline. I love you too. <laughs> Thank you for being here today. I know it's not easy. If you are ready to take this journey all the way, I can help. To find more about my unique method of turning your past trauma into your superpower or how to connect with me best, go to anandichburn.com. This journey isn't possible to do on your own. So make sure you like, subscribe and review the podcast so we can help more people like you. And if you have someone in your life who is struggling to overcome their trauma, this is something you can give them that truly can change the course of their life forever. We'll see you next time for another episode of the world's best trauma recovery podcast. And just remember, you are able to help yourself and you can do it right now.